Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Merod, and today on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Michael D'Angelo from Holacracy One. In this episode, we explore what holacracy is. Let me briefly attempt to summarize. It's a method of decentralized management and organizational governance where authority and decision-making are distributed across self-organizing teams rather than a traditional management hierarchy. We looked at how it is being implemented in the private and public sector across the globe and specifically explored how organizations here in the UAE are using it to transform their organizational structures. So join us as we dive into the conversation. Today, we're sitting down with Michael D'Angelo of Holacracy One. Thanks for being on the show. Sure, no problem. So before we get into what Holacracy is, what Holacracy One does, uh, can you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, my background, I guess I would start with uh, it's in uh, computer science. I got my degree, computer science degree in early 90s, worked mainly in federal government at that time, and uh, then switched to uh, work at Disney in the sort of the turn of the century, the, the Height of the dot com in the two thousands. Two thousands, yeah. I, I guess it was, it was the lull of the dot com. <laughs> Bad timing. Uh, and, just at the end of the yeah, just bubble. at the end. I was I was there to uh, to enjoy the fall. And uh, while at my time at Disney, I uh, worked on my executive MBA and got an executive MBA from the University of Washington. I was trying to figure out how I can differentiate myself as a uh, technology leader. And then uh, after that, went to work in the state of Washington as a CIO for the healthcare authority and moved into a few different agencies within the state of Washington until about three months ago where I joined Holacracy One after leaving state government. So if we go back, where did you originally come from before you went to Disney? I, I worked at the Department of the Interior, which is a federal, federal entity. Specifically, I worked for the U.S. Geological Survey. And so we studied water quality and water use within the state of Washington. So a bit of a science geek. I kind of love science. Yeah. But originally, you're from the state of Washington? Uh, I guess, you know, I I come from a military family, so we moved all over. Uh, So I moved to the state of Washington in the high school age. Uh, I was actually born in Germany on a military base, but lived in Florida through most of my youth and then moved to Washington um, to live with my uh, grandparents. And prior to joining Holacracy One, you said you were at Disney and then you were with the state of Washington. Yeah. What would you say you took from those experiences to where you are now? I mean, where were you first introduced to Holacracy? That's a whole other question. Yeah. But what learnings did you take from what you did at Disney to the first place, to the state of Washington? Yeah, you know, I I guess, you know, each place you learn something. Um, When I left the federal government, what... I mean, it was a really nurturing environment for me. So I, it, I had a lot of independence in the federal environment, went to Disney. And what Disney brought to me was, one, a lot of complexity. The technology is just way more complex than what I was using at the federal government. Uh, plus, there was a, it was in their um, internet division. So I ended up dealing a lot with, with startup kinds of things. And so at that time, there was just startups all over the place that was the cutting edge that was just cutting edge and and you know disney was just now getting into the whole internet thing and and they're trying all kinds of new businesses so we you know had new lines of business opening and closing all the time and and there was this great sense of uh, urgency for everything i just loved the 
I, I just love the excitement of it, um, you know, at Disney. And, and it was also a great place to work. But I was always looking at sort of moving on in terms of like moving up the career ladder. And after I got my executive MBA, which Disney helped, you know, helped me with, there wasn't an opportunity in Washington at Disney. Most of my opportunities were going to be in California. And at that time, wasn't looking at moving. Um, but what I took away from Disney was really that I think the, the energy and the, I loved the small teams and just uh, the real strong sense of purpose and just sort of, you know, the late night crunches to get stuff done. So I took that away from Disney. It was a small team, like true startup mentality stuff? It was a whole bunch of small teams. So it, it was, my particular team was, I was on the e-commerce team. And so I had, I was the manager of the team and had responsibility for the Disney store, online Disney store. And we also had the NASCAR store for a while and Disney auctions and also supported the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, their back-end commerce. So it's really the e-commerce side of Disney. And that uh, there was still a lot of startup mentality, although that's a very much brick and mortar, but they're still pretty new in the online space, you know, an, an online store. So there was a lot of things that we had to create. Um, and But around me, there was ESPN and ABC and Movies.com and companies that don't even exist anymore, you know, that I can't even think of. But you know, the whole, it was a collection of a bunch of startups, and everyone had the same sort of energy and, and just pure intellect. It was amazing. Being around people of different backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, different around people of different backgrounds. Although everyone was equally passionate about technology, and we just everyone was geeking out. All types of geeks. All types of geeks. Yeah, and and there was just a high energy, and uh, and surprisingly, a lot of people there weren't did not have a formal education. I was one of the few that actually had a formal education, and so you know at that time in the turn, you know, around the two thousand. There were just people were just being hired right out of high school, just because they were smart, and they learned on the job. And uh, I guess I wasn't smart enough; I had to go to college first. <laughs> but so that differentiated me. But I knew that wasn't going to last. I wanted to, you know, further differentiate myself. And then going into um, state government, and the reason why I went to state government is because I was looking for a C level type of job, and you know, made sense with my technology background as well as my um, executive management, you know, education, formalized education. So I took a, you know, C-level job and and also had a background in government, right? I had actually 17 years in the federal government uh, experience. So in the back of my mind, there was always this sort of sense of service and wanting to, you know, make a difference in the community and this sort of thing. And, and the other thing is I thought I wanted to get into like bioengineering or sort of biotech, and so I joined this healthcare authority, and I, I learned a couple of things. One is that that has absolutely nothing to do with biotech. <laughs> <laughs> and then two, that uh, healthcare just isn't, isn't for me. It's a really complex business problem that it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not something that interests me. <laughs> so I learned that. <laughs> Was that the tech side of healthcare? Yeah, so I basically ran their IT uh, ran their technology um, side. You know, I was a CIO. So what that meant is I'm on the, you know, the executive team. And what was unique about the healthcare authority at that time is that everyone with the exception of one person, everyone on the executive team was from private industry. And so we ran like a, a private company. So it was, it was very empowering and just super smart people that were passionate about the mission, but also had a, um, you know, a, a, a private sector background and sort of thought differently about problems. And we're willing to take risks and, you know, and, and experiment. But then, yeah, I left, 
left that and went to Department of Fish and Wildlife, which in many ways was a homecoming for me because it was very similar to my federal government job. The water. Yeah, on the water. And in fact, that agency worked a lot with the same people I knew. And so when I went in for the job interview, they would ask me about, well, do you know this person? You know, do you know John Vaccaro? I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know him very well. I mean, we worked together for 17 years and I could tell about, you know, his, you know, his personal hobbies and, and, and so name after name they would bring up to see if I knew these people. And, and I, you know, I know, I knew them all. And so it was almost like I was like interviewing with my family. Uh, homecoming. It was a homecoming. Yeah. And it was, I was pretty much a shoe in, uh, because I knew the, I knew the business as well as that, you know, pretty good background. So I, I actually only did that job for a couple of years. Uh, and it was, uh, in many ways, an easy job because the experience that I had over those different jobs was largely around transforming IT shops, right, and just making them smarter, better, faster, more aligned with the business, and and um, making them, helping them uh, speak the language of business, and also educating the business on the language of IT. So, sort of bridging that gap. And that's sort of how I viewed my role, and and how I that was one of my superpowers was bridging that gap in the, in the language and in, in communication. But I eventually left, after two years, uh, left there. I was basically poached to go to become the deputy CIO for the state of Washington. And uh, the CIO at the time, um, Brat Shalom, he came from uh, Microsoft, was a startup guy himself, invested in startups, and, you know, uh, really didn't need the job, but he was interested in making a difference. And and uh, apparently what he saw in me was my sort of innovation and drive and, you know, willing to take risks. And so uh, I became his deputy and him and I together um, uh, worked in the office of the CIO. And unfortunately, one of the main reasons why I went to that office was because of him. He was like, I wanted to work next to this guy that was had the same kind of drive and same interest, same passion and willing to take risk. And I told him, I said, you know, the main reason why I'm moving to this was job was because of you. Right, because it was largely the job was oversight and strategy. It wasn't operations. And my entire background up to that point is, was in operations, IT operations. So I used to be a you know a, a keynote speaker on ITIL and IT infrastructure library and other sorts of methodologies. And I think it was maybe three months later he left. <laughs> so he said, "Oh, don't worry, I'm not going to leave." And three months later he left. And he left because he was just tired of the commute. Uh, I'm like, "Oh man, you're the whole reason why." But I. I um, I stayed because fortunately his replacement, Michael Cockrell, uh, was also another startup guy. And also actually, coincidentally, another guy from, from uh, at one point, uh, Microsoft. So he turned out to be another uh, you know, thought leader and creative and, and willing to you know, experiment and all those things that I valued, uh, you know, he valued as well. Wasn't a micromanager, he loved to empower people, and, which was one of my criteria I developed uh, through my career. So I had to work with people that would enable me to do what I need to do. And so him and I had a great, we still have a great relationship and we worked together for another, worked together for four years. And um, it was great. And it was actually, you know, when we get to talk about holacracy, one of the things that had to be true in order for me to do what I need to do is I needed the support. And he was, you know, a person that enabled me to do what I need to do and to manage that boundary you know, and sort of protect me in many ways because what I was doing is very provocative. So, yeah, he was a great, you know, supporter. So if we go back to Disney, what kind of management uh, style did, did you practice there? Well, pretty much everywhere was hierarchy, right, and, and very hierarchical. Uh, 
there are, I mean, there's different sort of types of hierarchy. And, you know, management theory, they refer to them as colors. There's orange and there's green and, you know, other colors, three different colors. Uh, but basically, the way you could talk about people's experience in hierarchy is it really depends on the manager and whether, you know, their direct manager and what their experience is. And so I was fortunate um, early in my career working at the federal government to have managers that were very, um, you would refer to them as servant leaders. They're very supportive and not very micromanaging. So it, it created for me an expectation and, you know, it, it, uh, that this is what a manager should look like. And it ended up, you know, for me crafting sort of how I thought about management personally as I became a manager ultimately. Uh, but the, uh, when I went to Disney, I was a, a manager at Disney and, and I tried to, you know, practice those things I had learned through my experience working in the federal government, which is, you know, servant leader and hands-on manager. These are the types of words that you would, you know, usually describe the, the type of management style that I had. And the managers that I reported to were fairly enabling, pretty open and supportive, and uh, it wasn't very controlling. Uh, there was, and that was actually one of the reasons why I left Disney, is there wasn't, I ended up getting a new manager just because, you know, things change. And the manager that I ended up getting was a little bit too controlling. Too controlling and I'm like, ah, okay, it's time for me to go anyway. So, you know, it was, it was sort of this convergence of a couple of things. I just got my MBA. The new manager, which you know I didn't really uh, care for necessarily, and I needed to go to the next step, and so those three things converged, and and then you moved on, and I moved on, yeah, and it's actually one of the as I interview with companies, as I have interviewed with companies, that's one of the things I test for, is to understand what is their management style, and am I am I going to be in a place where I can actually do the things that I think I need to do. Uh, to make a difference, and and there's some companies that fail that, and you know they just don't choose not to work in companies like that. So I didn't up until my last four years in in the state of Washington, I've experienced the hierarchy like everybody else. So up to four years ago was the first time you experienced or were exposed to holacracy. Yeah, it was. Uh, while I was the deputy CIO in the state of Washington, uh, working for Brat Shalom, and although he was my direct supervisor, the way him and I worked is, you know, in our role, the job there was largely strategic. We oversaw uh, roughly 4,000 employees and about $4 billion a year in annual spend, IT spend. So our job was largely oversight and strategy for the state of Washington. And there were you know, a lot of as you would expect in any sort of enterprise, there's a lot of big problems that need to be solved. So we basically just divided it up. And the way we worked is we were essentially, it wasn't a supervisor-subordinate relationship. It was more of a partner. Um, you know, we, we shared everything. We, we knew exactly what each one was thinking. There were like no secrets between us. And we were sort of like two halves of one brain. And we had a lot of we, we shared a lot of the same principles and values. Uh, so you so synced up nicely. We synced up super nice, yeah. And uh, there were some differences between us, but you know, because we are our own person. But ultimately, the the way we thought about work and the way we approached it was uh, very similar, uh, largely like agile. So sort of this agile approach is maybe this agile mindset is sort of how I would describe it in a nutshell. But one of the problems that landed on my plate, and I'm not sure how I got stuck with it. 
But, you know, there are several problems that land on my plate to solve, and one of them was a workforce problem. And in the state of Washington, as in any government institution, and actually most private companies, we struggled with attracting and retaining talent, and particularly in government, because we just don't pay as much as private company, number one. And number two, we're right in the, the heart it's Washington. Of Washington. It's Microsoft. Yeah, it's, uh, right. Amazon. <laughs> yeah, we got Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, and Disney, and Expedia, and the list goes on and on and on of these high tech companies. And we competed for the same, you know, talent. The, the same yeah. talent, right? It's the same pool. Same pool. So, uh, as a CIO for Department of for the Healthcare Authority and for the Department of Fish and Wildlife, I struggled with the ability to hire and attract talent to my organization. Not only did I compete with other government entities, I competed with Microsoft and Google's. And I wanted the best talent I could get because that's how you solve problems, right? Is getting top talent. And every agency struggled with that same problem. And that became a one of the 12, we call them the 12 pillars. It became the one of the key strategies that we needed to solve as a state. And somehow uh, that ended up on my plate instead of his. And uh, so I, I just began chewing on that problem, and I, I probably spent a year trying to just think, like, how do you solve that problem? I can't throw money at it. Government, you know, like, what, what, would, be the, what would be the pitch? Hey, let's just pay employees more than Google. <laughs> right? That's not going to ever happen. It's not sustainable as well. It's not sustainable. And as a, as a citizen, that's not how you think of your government, right? You, you don't, like, people don't go to government because they get paid more. They go to government, and what you want from your government employees are people that are there because they're passionate about the work. So that's, that just doesn't make sense. So there has to be something different. And it was, I had this problem from an IT perspective, but so did other agencies from their own, you know, uh, from their own domains. And so a group of us got together, a group of deputy, deputies, um, directors uh, in the state got together. We formed this employer of choice committee, we called it, and to come up with ways that we can be employer of choice in the region. And... The best ideas that we could come up with at that time was Flex Fridays and teleworking. And I, that just felt really underwhelming for me <laughs> as I thought about it. I didn't have a better idea. You've probably forgot casual clothing day. Yeah, there, well, there wasn't a casual clothing. It, it, that would have been the thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, yeah each agency had their own sort of culture around clothing. But, and we wrote an, uh, we, uh, wrote an executive order for the governor to sign that you know, told agencies to implement a telework and a Flex Friday type of thing. And, but it always felt underwhelming. Uh, and I was doing some research, and I came across this, this employee manual from this company called Valve. And I'm reading this employee manual, and Valve is a company that, I mean, they're the most successful gaming company in the yeah, world. Half-Life event in gaming. Yeah, Half-Life, that's right. I mean, it's, uh, Steam is their, you know, product that people are familiar with. But they're the most successful gaming company in the world as measured by revenue per employee. And they've been around for over 10 years. And since inception, they, I'm mean, jumping ahead in the punchline here, but in, since inception, they've had no managers. And, and they have like 500 employees. It seems to vary between 300 to 500 employees. And so I'm reading this employee manual. They talk about their environment and how they make decisions and how people choose what projects to work on. And they're based in Bellevue, in, in the Seattle area. And I thought, my God, this is one of our competitors. And I... <laughs> I was quoted in a newspaper, or not a newspaper, in a magazine article. So we had, I was sharing the story, and I uh, was quoted as saying that I went back to this deputy director meeting, 
And I threw down that manual, uh, the employee manual that I found online, and I said, if we think Flex Fridays and teleworking is going to make a difference, we're on crack. And people thought that the, uh, that the magazine misquoted me. No, I actually did say that. Uh, <laughs> in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have said that. I, I probably would have said, you know, we're high, because that would have been funny, because we've legalized marijuana. But, um, yeah, it's just the Flex Fridays teleworking was just not anywhere near what our competitors were doing. And I knew that already, but to see it, like, it was even worse than I thought. And I, I decided then that I have to think completely outside the box here. It is, I need to be so far away from what it is that we typically do. This is not an incremental problem. This is a problem that needs dramatic, drastic, uh, you know, drastic change. And I was sharing that story with, you know, I'm, in the, I'm plugged into the Agile community, so I'm sharing that story with one of my Agile friends that owns a company that um, builds a Kanban software. And I was sharing that story, and he goes, oh, yeah, that sounds like holacracy. And uh, what, what? What are you saying? <laughs> he said it like three times. Like, how do you spell that? And so he, you know, he spelled it out for me. Oh, I think it's H O L A C R A C Y. So I put it on a post-it note. Had no idea what he was talking about. Stuck it on my monitor, and pretty much ignored it for like a month. And finally, I had some time to think about this problem again. Check out your sticky note. Yeah, check out my. Oh, what is this holacracy? Oh, okay, well, I'm gonna Google it. So I Googled it. Saw a little. Uh, two-minute video clip, like an animation that explained at a high level what is holacracy. What did the video say? The video, basically, what it's describing was this guy who was like trying to get some you know, work done, but he notices this leaky pipe and he tries to, to let people know, hey, this leaky pipe is, you know, is leaking and needs to be fixed, but it doesn't get fixed and he waits in long lines. and So he finally just decides, well, I'm just going to fix it myself because it's, you know, it's creating a problem for me. So he fixes himself and and then there's this concept that you can, if there's something that's impacting your work, you can actually just make your own decisions and fix these things yourself. If you're capable of fixing them. Yeah, if you're capable and you have the, you have the power, yeah. you're empowered to do that. And I'm like, well, that makes sense as a two-minute video you know, animation. <laughs> so I started a little more reading, and I read some magazine article. And the very first magazine article I read was from Harvard Business Review, and the title of it was No More Managers. And my first thought when I thought when I saw that was, well, if there's no managers, who do employees complain about? And we're also in a I worked in a represented environment. The the state of Washington has represented employees, and so there's union and there's labor, and and so it just brought up all kinds of questions around how this might work. And I almost dismissed it because I just didn't think it would work in government. It just seems way you know too far out there. But I decided before I completely dismiss it, at least. Take the training, make sure I learn about it and really understand it. And not just the the hype and the you know, the clickbait that you see on the web, but like, you know, really understand it. So I took a class in Texas with Holacracy One and a week long class. And after about the second day, my thought was, this could work. This could work in government. Absolutely. I could clearly see how this was a thing that could actually work and even probably work better in government than in private industry. So um, that's that was the start of it. So it clicked. It clicked. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to holacracy now. Yeah. How would you describe holacracy for our listeners? What is holacracy? Yeah, well, basically holacracy is an alternative approach for how a group of people organize around work. And the way people typically organize around work is they form a hierarchical organizational system. Command and control system, right? A uh, predict and control kind of approach. Holacracy is a self management methodology where rather than a 
hierarchical approach, you essentially have a group of people that work together and define what is the work that needs to get done and, and define that work in roles uh, that are you know, clear roles, clear accountabilities, and you're constantly, as a group of individuals, refining that definition. And people fill multiple roles to you know, whatever energizes them, whatever skills they have or skills they want to learn, whatever the organization needs to achieve its purpose. So that's you know, maybe at a high level. Yeah, there's more. That's like a 100-level <laughs> interpretation. There's you know, two, three, and 400-level interpretations of what it is. So would you say it's a new way of doing things? Or how long has Holacracy been around? Holacracy itself has been around for 10 years, but self-management isn't actually no. It's, uh, their companies have implemented self-management practice 30 years ago. Uh, the one that I know of, so there's a great book that I came across that describes the larger context uh, which enables or which self-management exists within, a book called Reinventing Organizations by... Frederick Leloux. And in that book, he describes a company called the Morning Star, which is, he describes many companies, but one of them is the Morning Star, which is a tomato uh, processing company in California. And they've got three factories and uh, 300 employees, 23 lines of business. And they're, you know, they're in an agricultural business, right? It's a commodity business. Typically, companies in this space see single digit growth year over year. This company sees double digit growth. And they have the the, they own the U.S. market share on tomato paste. Uh, it's like 40%. So they're the largest uh, player in that, that sector. And they, their product is basically used to make ketchup and spaghetti sauce and pizza sauce and that sort of stuff. So we've all actually eaten their product. Uh, but that company, for the last 20 years, has had no managers. Everyone is uh, self-managed. And employees even set their own salary in that, in that organization. And it was funny because they have video clips, YouTube clips you can look at and because uh, there's been a lot of studies on this company. And, and the, one of the things that I didn't quite understand then, but I appreciate a lot more now, they're interviewing these individuals and asking them questions. And they were talking to this one guy. I don't remember what, what he did. But they asked him, hey, who's your boss? And it was amazing to see him try to answer that question because it was obvious he had no idea what they were talking about. It's like the concept was so foreign to him. It's like, what's boss? Oh yeah, I guess that's a thing. You, know, you can imagine, you could see yeah. him thinking about like, uh, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't have a boss. No, the concept of boss, B O S S. And he see him. He answers it first by saying, oh, I don't have a boss, and then he corrected himself by saying, Well, actually, no, I'm my boss. You know, so you could see this that that simple question, which in a hierarchy people answer in half a second, was so foreign. To someone who's been practicing self-management for you know a couple of decades, so who do you report to? Someone yeah, yeah, it's all, yeah, no, you know, he, he, it's it, a name. Yeah, even this person, but in a self-managed system, that it's a nonsensical question. It, it just doesn't make sense. So that's holacracy. But the company you work for now, or the company you're part of now, yeah, is holacracy one, right? So what does holacracy one do? Holacracy one, in a nutshell, helps organizations adopt self-management. Uh, specifically the methodology called Holacracy. Holacracy One was, uh, came about about 10 years ago where the founder was himself, like many other CEOs, were struggling with the uh, constraints of hierarchy and just wasn't moving fast enough. And just as a CEO himself, was finding, spending a lot of time dealing with things that just didn't seem that important. Uh, so he wanted to experiment with different organizational systems. And he came up with this thing that we now call Holacracy. And he left that company to essentially continue this journey. Uh, and so Holacracy One as a company, we help 
organizations implement the, the methodology called holacracy or the practice called holacracy. So holacracy itself is a, uh, you know, it's a methodology, but it's open source. It's, it's, you can go on the web, you can Google holacracy, Google holacracy, and you'll see the constitution, which is the set of rules that an organization chooses to, uh, to play by everyone in the organization, including the bosses, the ex-bosses. And so that's, it's open source. We provide coaching and training services to help organizations adopt this, this methodology. Help them transition. Yeah, the transition. Maybe hierarchy to. Right, right, right. Because you just can't. It's, like, you can't. it's like riding a bike. You can't, you don't know how to ride a bike just by reading about it. You have to actually do it and be nice to have some, some training wheels. <laughs> so we are the training wheels. So is that, is that your new type? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're the training wheels for companies adopting self-management. And so we're there for you know a, number, a few months, depending on the organization and, and what their needs are, and we help them become self-sufficient in that, where they can sort of go off on their own. And uh, we also um, have licensee, a licensee business or a franchise business type of thing where we have individuals all over the world who don't work for us, but they uh, really love the idea of self-management, they love holacracy, and want to also help companies adopt um, self-management in their regions and you know and they we train those individuals and we make sure they achieve certain quality standards and and support them um, so that's our business basically so i think the bigger question is what kind of management system does holacracy one use <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> uh what do you think we use Holacracy. <laughs> <laughs> We've been thinking about adopting it. Um, <laughs> I know this company that can help you. you They're training wheels. <laughs> yeah, okay. We should, what if we get a discount? Sort of friends and family. Uh, yeah, obviously we use Holacracy. And what's interesting, so I, in the state of Washington, I adopted Holacracy for my division. And so I became an you know, implementer and a practitioner, and I went through training and coaching training and that sort of thing, and, and became, you know, I, uh, it, it, I should also say the state of Washington was the first government in the world to really, in a, in a large scale, to adopt this you know, methodology. So what's different about working at Holacracy One as a company that practices Holacracy is they not only practice Holacracy, it's like they make it, no, it's not they, we make it our business to really push the limits and the boundaries and try to really understand what's there that's, you know, that is other than holacracy because one of the concepts that's one of the things that's happening is that there is this next level of organizational development what organizational scientists refer to as teal teal organizations those are the colors you mentioned earlier yeah so mm-hmm. they're basically organizational scientists don't know what to call the next level because it's it's defined in hindsight so they give them placeholder names which is a color and so the highest level organization uh, highest level hierarchy color is green and it, those are characterized. One of the characteristics that are defining for that, uh, that level of organization are value-based companies. Companies that say, oh, yeah, here are our core values, and we hire to values. But, you know, values is the center of everything that they do. So Zappos is certainly one that's known for that, right? And so they're on their journey to move to Teal. That's what their, that's what their mission is from an organizational perspective. But they're coming from this green-level organization. Most organizations are probably in the orange. What's the next level down? Uh, the... So as organizations are moving and adopting these teal concept, it's still being defined. And so there's questions like, how does values fit in a teal type organization? Uh, 
And so that's a lot of what holacracy ends up doing is really pushing, like, how do you, like, actually defining what teal is. What does that mean? What does that really mean? So we're really on the edges and the fringes. Uh, Yes, we practice holacracy, but really we're trying to flesh out the other elements of an organizational system um, to to really understand what, what teal means. So it's... It's a very different type of <laughs> holacracy-run organization. So we're, you know, we're constantly testing the rules, breaking the rules, and stressing the rules, just for the purpose of building a, a better um, rule set. And that constitutionally, you said it's evolving, right? It's constantly evolving. It's open source. It's in GitHub. So organizations that practice holacracy contribute heavily to comments and recommendations for improving the the rule set, right? And in fact, we're coming out, we're working on the next version, version 5.0, to probably be released um, early next year. That has, you know, makes it simpler and easier and just has a lot of more improvements in it, just like with anything else. So just for our listeners, what kind of uh, industries or sectors tend to practice holacracy or is it open to most sectors? Yeah, it's certainly open to most sectors. Uh, I mean, I think part of your question is like what sectors have adopted yeah, exactly. self-management yeah. you know or holacracy and and i can't think of one that hasn't so there's examples in every every yeah i think the one we're sitting here in a room that's uh with signs that say dubai police so I, I don't know that there's actually a police um law enforcement organization that's adopted holacracy although there's or self-management in general, but there has been military that's adopted self-management. So I have, there are specific examples with healthcare. Biotzerk is probably the best known. Uh, and what did they do? Biotzerk does in-home. They're in the, based in the Netherlands, and they do in-home healthcare delivery. And for the last ten years, they've been practicing self-management, and there's no managers. And they are they've reduced the cost of in-home delivery of healthcare by forty percent. They're in 20, 23 or 25 countries now, and they have over 16,000 employees. Wow. Right. So it's that's a huge massive scale, right? So there's, there's healthcare uh, government. So, you know, we're here in, in Dubai, and uh, there's Dubai Government Agency, which we can talk about a little, a little bit in a moment. There's also uh, a basically the social and health services government entity in Belgium that's practicing self-management, city of Amsterdam, state of Washington, we've had one. Uh, Education. There's organizations that deliver education that have adopted healthcare. Nonprofits, um, finance, working with a bank in a in a country that's adopting holacracy. Uh, and yeah, there's. And I'm trying to I'm trying to recall how much I can say, you know, publicly, right? Um, how much is but publicly like, known? But the famous companies like Zappos. Zappos, I think, is one Zappos. of the most well known because when there, Tony C wrote this book, right. Uh, yeah, delivering happiness. Yeah, yeah. He talked about right. Yeah, and that was. I mean, I think I think self management hit a pivot point about that time, and I think it was the convergence of three things, maybe four. The three things that I think converged was one: you're describing Zappos coming out and saying, "Hey, we're doing this," right? So they made it public and well known, and it was it was part of their brand. Um, but at the same time, around, roughly around the same time, Fred Glue published his book, which was the body of research that he had done exploring this topic worldwide and discovering that there's hundreds of companies that have adopted self-management. Was that the book you mentioned? Reinventing. Right, yeah. And then the third is the existence of holacracy, which, so people now are reading about this, hearing about Zappos, which adopted holacracy, and holacracy had been in existence, you know, more than five years, you know, before this, but 
now there's actually an off-the-shelf you know, tool set or support you can get, right? You don't have to create this on your own. Now there's multiple sources talking about it. Yeah, there's multiple sources talking about it. Like, but, you know, Björtzorg and the Morningstar and, and Valve, they all had to create their own system because there wasn't, you couldn't buy it off the shelf, right? You couldn't get support to, to do this. So all three of those things converged and there's now over a thousand companies that have implemented Holacracy. And like I said, I can't think of um, an industry that hasn't with the exception of maybe law enforcement. Although when I get that question, I usually say, yeah, but the military has. And yeah. law enforcement is sort of paramilitary. Yeah. So now we're, like you said, we're in the Dubai Future Accelerator right yes. now. Yeah. And you're actually part of the cohort, or at least Holacracy One is part of the cohort, right. working with Dubai Knowledge. And at first we were thinking, what does Holacracy One have to do with the other solutions they're working on in terms of education. Oh, you were thinking that too? Yeah, I was yeah, thinking, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> and then what we realized was Dubai Knowledge itself is a practitioner of Holacracy. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how have you seen them implementing it here in Dubai? Specifically, let's say, in sure. Dubai Knowledge. Yeah, they've been implementing it for about two years now. Now, I've only been with the company for three months, right? So but I remember them implementing. In fact, I met the, the, the director general over a year and a half ago at a Holacracy conference, actually, in Amsterdam. And uh, we connected because we're two government people and implementing this uh, new um, modern way of organizing people that isn't from the 19th century. And uh, so we, we connected on a you know sort of a government-to-government sort of level. And my reaction at that time was, oh, uh, thankfully, there's other governments. <laughs> I'm not alone anymore. Uh, and but then two, it's like it's. I think it was amazing that there's another government doing doing this. And then three, that it was you know in this area, uh, right? And it's not like it's not the first area that comes to mind when people th- around the world when people think about this sort of you know kind of practice. It's like you know where would you think this might occur? And is this on the cutting edge of forward thinking for management? In yes. Terms of- even yeah. just for an organization, but now let's jump to the government level right, to think right. in this way. You've got to be, uh, <laughs> this may be self-serving, uh, but I mean, you really have to be, uh, you have to have vision and you have to be forward-thinking enough to recognize like this is actually a thing and be willing to fight those fights uh, because it's, you know, it's not like half the governments in the world do this, right? There's a handful that I know of. So you are still at the you know the cutting edge, and you'd have to be willing to you know be a real leader to to do that. So the you know it's I was surprised, um, but I'll, I'll pleasantly surprised. And now that I'm you know, I'm here, and and you know Dr. Abdul and I have you know talked quite a bit, uh, and I've had a chance. Now my interest is different because now I worry about our clients and you know how they're doing, and so I'm very curious. And, and I spent some time there today talking to several people, just just people randomly that I'm running into in the halls at, at Dubai Knowledge, uh, just asking them how, how things are going and trying to get at the heart of the human change that's happening there and how people think about it's it. It's getting feedback directly from yeah, the source. Yeah, right from the source, right, and trying to get at the heart of how people, how it's really affecting people there and to give me a sense of how it's going. And so the, what I get, uh, I think their story is very, very similar to any company story which is they're an organization of 300 or so people. And so you have some percentage of the population in that organization that just totally get it right off the bat and are just gung-ho. And uh, and then you have people at the other extreme. 
and there are teams at Dubai Knowledge that I, I know about that I've heard um, you know, give examples of, which are now you know 10x faster than what they were doing before. They're just way more creative and just uh, highly engaged. And uh, and there's other teams that are still learning Holacracy, right? And they're still adopting it. So I asked today, like, how many people? I asked one person, how many? What percentage of Dubai Knowledge do you think are really actively engaged in trying to learn this thing and and you know really engaging and, they, and she thought it was roughly about seventy five percent, and um, and there were a portion of the twenty five percent they're they're still trying to figure it out right um, it's not like they're against it they're just trying to figure it out so they're two years into the journey and we usually tell organizations it takes about three years for organizations to really. You know, really to get it and, and understand the mindset shift because it's not implementing a process. It's, it's a complete shift. Yeah. yeah, it's changing how people think about work. And yeah, so I think they're doing great. Uh, and and Dr. Abdullah is you know uh, has a lot of vision and a lot of patience, and he can see even through the, the challenges, the day to day challenges, he can see the the potential. Do you know of any other, let's say? Organizations, corporate or private or public, with, within Dubai. Yeah, there are some other organizations. Uh, in, in fact, I know that you know here we're at DFA, and I know that um, Dubai Future Foundation and, and a lot of its related um, entities have, they know a lot about Holacracy. They've adopted it and have used it, and and uh, you know we're talking to DFA potentially about actually adopting it as an organizational model for DFA and. So it actually has a lot of familiarity in the area, uh, which probably surprised you as well. In terms of it did surprise me actually. Yeah, I, I uh, it surprised me because I'm kind of pro- projecting what my experience was in the state of Washington yeah. too. <laughs> and you know, I, uh, there's there's a lot more um, uh, forward thinking uh, and um, you know the right leaders at the right place at the right time here. Yeah, and I, I mean, I th- just the fact that there's a whole country's energy around trying to think about the future and what does the future look like. Even the concept of a Dubai Future Foundation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, I, I think this is a, uh, I think leadership has set up a platform for this kind of thing to be safe enough to try. And that's that's a rare platform. I, I certainly didn't have that platform back in, in the state of Washington. Yeah, you right? probably had to fight. I, yeah, I had a, it was a constant every week uh, trying to, protect and defend and fight off you know threats because there wasn't that kind of foundation that I could rely on it was sheer will <laughs> uh, so I think um, I, I'm th- my time here I've learned a lot more about this platform that Dubai has set up to at least make it acceptable and and safe enough to try these sorts of you know um, efforts and so I think the opportunity here is is much greater and you know people have more opportunity to learn because at the end of the day, the world is shifting. So it's, it's just a matter of, you know, our country's going to be at the front of it or at the end of it. Yeah, it's a choice to make. It's a choice, yeah. All right, well, we'll shift gears a bit. Oh, I will say one other thing. Because you asked me about Dubai, yeah. but there's also a private company in Saudi Arabia that's implementing. Uh, so when I talk to, like, private companies and they say, yeah, I don't know, like, okay, wait a second. It's been implemented in government. <laughs> it's been implemented, you know, in Saudi Arabia. Like, what exact? I mean, there's pretty much not an example of, of you know places not implementing it. So there's no excuse anymore. Right? Now you're just chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be the last one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All 
All right, so if we shift focus now, unless there's anything else you want to say about holacracy. Oh, I've got tons I can say about holacracy. But <laughs> this is a four-hour podcast, podcast. Yeah. is that what you said? Okay. <laughs> That's the extended cut. <laughs> <laughs> the director's cut. <laughs> Message us if you want that one. <laughs> so this is a question we, we tend to ask on the podcast, and... It's a pretty typical question because we're talking to sometimes executives or sometimes they're startup people and it's a bit more interesting. But I'm very interested to see how someone who practices holacracy answers this question. So what does your typical workday look like? <laughs> uh, that's, that's an interesting question. And it's an interesting question for a lot of different reasons. One, it's an interesting question from a holacracy perspective, right? But it's also interesting because what my workday looked like more than three months ago was probably typical. People drive into work, they you know look at their calendar and do their stuff. Uh, but in holacracy as a company, we don't have an office. We're we're very distributed. We have people all over the world. We have we're twenty employees. Well, actually, we don't call them employees. There's we don't have employees. They have partners. Partners, yeah, partners and contractors. And but we have. You know, we hire from people all over the world. We hire where the talent is and where the interest and the passion is. So we have people in Israel and Guatemala, France, the UK, of course, the US. And my commute is about two minutes, assuming I go downstairs first to do something. Uh, but my commute is basically I go from my one bedroom to another bedroom where my office is, converted to an office. So my day starts by. Um, besides the usual getting dressed and eating and all that kind of stuff, walking to my office and saying, um, hey, Google, start work. And yes, it tells me what's on my schedule. Yeah, so it just sort of lays out my schedule for the day and tells me about what's on the news and turns on my favorite radio station and, and plays. And I sit there and, and I start work. And what work looks like is probably not too dissimilar from uh, what a lot of people do, which is I check my calendar to see about what meetings I forgot that I had that day. And uh, we use Slack at Holoxy One, so it's jumping into Slack and you know seeing what messages. Uh, we also, it's a requirement in our company that everyone use a GTD system, getting things done. So, uh, But you can choose your own GTD You choose your own, yeah, it's the methodology, right? Mm-hmm. So you use whatever you want. Whatever tool. Whatever mm-hmm. tool. And I happen to use uh, Jira as my tool. And uh, so I, I check that to see what's um, you know in my my inbox that I haven't sorted through, and and just start working on it. And there's probably at this point, three months in, maybe twenty to thirty percent of my time I'm in uh, Zoom talking to other partners. And so it's very easy for us. I mean, we've just we have the tools and we just learned the habits, and I'm learning the habits that for a distributed team to just work like we're not far from each other. And so it's very easy for us to converse. And so I, I'll jump into Zoom to have a quick conversation with somebody or scheduled meeting or meeting sometimes with, I guess part of maybe the way I should describe it, like what are the roles that I have in Holacracy One? Because that's how I think about it is I have a list of roles. I don't know it's a dozen or so. And I just sort of go down the list. Okay, what's what do I need to do for this role? What do I need to do for that role? And and I have some roles in Glassfrog, which is our software product that supports holacracy adoptions in companies. And and you might 
you know, in a hierarchical system, you might uh, call me like the business owner, perhaps, of that. But I fill various roles in that team. Uh, so I look at, you know, what I need to do for, for that team. And I also fill role in our, eco, we call it ecosystem, which is basically our licensee business. So I look at the various roles there and what do I need to do to move things forward in that part of our business. Uh, and then I have some other miscellaneous roles. You saw one which is around garbage like clean yeah. out the garbage or something. Right? During your retreats? Or yeah, something. during the retreats, which isn't until, I've, that's a couple of weeks out. So I only have to do that during that week and that role. So one thing we didn't talk about was the concept of roles. What, what are these roles that you're yeah. talking about? Well, so like in a hierarchy, you have a position. Yeah, that's typically what we know. And yeah, you so have, what is your position? Do you have a title? I don't have a position. My business card doesn't have a title on it. Um, if people, if I get forced, like for example, we just went to this, um, conference, yeah. right? And, and you have to, to put a title. I put it partner. <laughs> Sometimes I'll put in like awesome guy or whatever. I just make something up. Okay. It depends on who I'm talking to. And I pick a title that's relevant for the conversation. Uh, but the reality is from a Holacracy One perspective, I, we don't actually have titles because we fill multiple roles, right? So it kind of depends on what you're doing. So let me explain that. Let me back up a little bit. So in a hierarchy, you have positions and those positions have, there's a position description, and it's basically a one-to-one for the most part. People work in a position, and that position description is supposed to explain what you do. Now, the reality is it doesn't, right? Uh, position description largely is a justification for your salary or um, justification for why the manager should be paid more or something like that. It's not actually very descriptive of what you do. Uh, in Holacracy, we don't have those sorts of things. What we have is... There's the work, you know, there's the purpose of the organization. And the purpose of Holacracy One is to change humanity's relationship to power. And so we break that work down, like, how do you do that? And, and we break that work down into um, roles, like there's a role around Glassfrog, which is to make the software that helps support that. Well, that's a lot of work, so we break that down into more roles. And so in our organization, I haven't actually counted the roles, and it's changing constantly, but there's probably, I don't know, 100 roles. And those roles essentially represent a chunk of work that needs to be done, that needs to be done in order to achieve the purpose. And it also articulates the, what can anyone else in the company ex- reasonably expect that role to do or expect from that role, okay, accountabilities, all right? And so people fill roles depending on what your interest is, passion, skills, you know, that sort of thing, and the needs of the organization. So I fill a dozen different roles, and, and um, the sum of those roles is my job description maybe, right? The difference is it actually says what I do. <laughs> and the team, I mean, people themselves define the roles. It's not like some, some boss says, hey, we need a role for this. The team together says, oh, my, oh we got this different work we haven't seen before and we don't know how to handle this in our company we need a create Someone a role to fill that role as we well. need to create a role that cares about this so let's create a role okay yeah it just makes sense yeah let's create a role so there's actually a process for this i'm kind of <laughs> not really articulating the process well but there's a process and we say yeah that makes sense let's create a role and okay what do we need this role to do in order to solve this problem well, we need a, to have these accountabilities and we craft that and we design the org constantly. We're constantly improving. It's an evolving it's totally evolving, right? It's not, it's not a intelligent design approach that you might have in a hierarchy where someone just imagines what's the best design of organization. It's an evolutionary design. It's based on what's actually needed. It's based on what's actually needed at the time, right? It's this sense and respond sort of approach. So you create the role and you define what 
you know, at least a starting point for what you need to expect from that role. And, and you do that, and that's the design. Who actually fills it is a separate question. Okay, that's a, that's a tactical, operational question. And then someone who ever fills that role, uh, they can see the, what the purpose of it was and what's accountable, and they can choose to energize it however they want. And they might re- redefine it a bit, they might clarify it, but now there's someone who's actually thinking about the work of that role, right? Whereas everyone else has had a sort of a cursor we think of about it, right? But not really in-depth thinking. So now there's someone filling it who's accountable, meaning there's an accounting of how they make decisions uh, to energize that role. So that's... I don't know if that answers your question, but you know that's a, maybe a long-winded way of describing what a role is. And I, the analogy that I use, uh, we actually, even in a hierarchy, people think of roles, but we call them hats. What are the different hats you wear? So it's maybe an analogy that's useful. So now that you have all these different roles, do you assign a role per day, or it's just as get things done method? Yeah, so basically it's up to each individual person to prioritize the work. They can do it their own way? Yep. Okay. Now, there are rules in Holacracy that uh, tell you how to prioritize and what you have to prioritize above other things. Uh, But an individual looks at all the work of all the roles, and this is what I do in the morning. I take a look at all the work that's in my, my, you know, um, to-do column. And I, from that list, I decide what's the most important thing, what adds the most value. Or maybe sometimes it's where my energy is, right? Yeah, so you have a bit of flexibility in terms of... absolutely, yeah. And... It's and I don't just do that once a week. I'm like I'm doing that constantly throughout the day. I'm constantly reviewing that list as I get something done. Something new comes up. You might prioritize it. Yeah, right. And a lot of it, probably eighty percent of the time, I'm really my what I do is basically what I refer to as follow my energy. Right. There's sometimes I just you have these moments where like I'm just I really want to work on this thing. I just I'm energized to buy it. It's in my backlog. I'm going to go ahead and work on it unless there's a, a you know a good reason why. I need to work on something else because I promised someone I would have this done. You know, they need it by the end of the day because to help support their their role. So it's, um, but it's up to me to figure that out. And you know, people can ask me, yeah, like like you know, could you help with this or could yeah, you... or how are you prioritizing or like I got this thing I need you to do and what are you prioritizing ahead of it? That's that's actually a rule in holacracy. The Pe- transparency aspect. Okay. Yeah, people have the right to ask anyone else. Uh, what is, they have the right to ask, for example, the projected date. When do you think you might get this done uh, next week? Uh, Especially also, if it's relevant for what they need to get done. Well, but yeah. That doesn't that's the only reason why they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they, if that doesn't work for them, they might ask, well, I need it by in a couple of days. What are you prioritizing above this? And they, they'd make a pitch, you know, yeah. like why they want to prioritize it ahead. But basically it's a conversation and there's a reason why I'm prioritizing it way I am. It's based on what I know. So maybe if I make the pitch and I provide you more information, you're like, oh, okay, that yeah. actually you made sense. Right. I'm going to reprioritize. Right. Or maybe I have data that they don't have. I was like, well, the reason why it's going to take me weeks, I got this other thing I have to get done for this conference. Oh, that's more important. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can adjust what I need from you, you know, to, to get what I need, right? So it's a conversation. And, there's, and if for some reason that conversation results in a sort of a, um, you know, a, a, still a block where we just fundamentally disagree, there's a role that actually unties blockers. <laughs> it's all figured out. So if that's what your day looks like, do you have any routines or habits you tend to do? You know, the <laughs> boy, you're really getting into like, a, so there's some things, this, here again, this probably has less to do with holacracy and more to do with my own that's fine. My own, you know, sort of thing. So 
I've been leading company or you know teams and, and organizations for 30 years. And one of the things about working at Haloxy One as a company, we're like I said, we're um, very we're self-directed. We take that to the nth degree, and and we're always trying to push those limits. And I noticed in my colleagues who have been there longer, they're very good at sort of like they come and go out of work. Like they'll come, they'll work for a little bit, and then they go off to the gym, they do something, and they come back. They and they, they just throughout the day, they're just constantly coming and going between work and personal, right? And uh, and they're you know getting their job done, right? And just you know doing amazing at it. And I noticed my own behavior is I still get up in the morning and I still think like nine to five kind of thing. I come in, I go to my room, my office, and I work, work my you know work my butt off until I've you know put in my eight or nine or ten hours, whatever it is, and then I stop. And it's a habit. So I noticed <laughs> after two weeks. Uh, I was just sort of reflecting on my last two weeks uh, at work, and I realized I never left the house in these last two weeks. I mean, literally never left the house, never walked outside of a door to, to do, go outside or anything. And I, it occurred to me that I had these habits in this old system where I'd like go to my car just to drive to work. Those are gone. Those are gone. And, and when on the way to the car, I would stop by and check out my garden, maybe pick a couple of tomatoes, eat some tomatoes or check on my bees or whatever, check on the animals. And I, I hadn't done that in two weeks. And so I, I'm, I'm still in the stage of where I'm trying to figure out like what habits do I need to introduce to really embrace this new way of work. So you actually need to rewire your habits. Yes. Because this is a whole new There's way a of whole working. new paradigm. Like, you know, you look at the models where they describe the different generations, right? The Gen X, the, you know, the, well, the baby boomers, the Gen X, you know, the Gen Y or millennials and Gen Z. And there are these sort of characteristics that define those, yeah. right? And there's a shift. I, I mentioned that there's three pivot points and there's this fourth one, which is people are changing. What people expect from work is changing, right? It comes back to what you were saying, like value-driven or purpose-driven right. organizations. Yeah, yeah. So how people like millennials or Gen Z, how they engage in work, and I know this intellectually because I read all about it and I you know, create strategies to try to track that workforce. I'm a Gen Xer and I'm an old Gen Xer. I'm at the border of baby boomer and Gen X, so I'm, I'm an old fart. And I still have um, you know, those habits. And, and it's like intellectually I understand it, but my own personal habits are, are still you know, very dated. So I'm, I'm finding it intriguing. Right, it's it's a fun sort of exercise. So you talk about habits. I'm still trying to figure out what habits I should have to really maximize, you know, my experience and maximize my, you know, new way of working. And so maybe ask me in another couple of years. <laughs> Did you have any role models growing up? Yeah, I think probably the um, biggest influencers in my life. Uh, one was my my step grandfather and. What the way he influenced me and the way I see it in myself today is he was uh, you know military guy and but he'd get up early in the morning and he was big into creating things he was always um, innovating building stuff and you know making uh, dehydrators out of refrigerators and just you know teaching himself welding and doing ornamental iron work and and so he was a guy that um, really taught me without actually teaching me taught me just by modeling this behavior around experimenting and and failure in fact i mean 
uh, I would say that we would describe a lot of the things he did as failures, but that word never was in our vocabulary. It was never something, you know, as we worked together on these stuff and things would, would quote, fail, it, it just, that word never came up. It was just part of the learning process. Right. And so as I think of, and, you know, and experiment with things today as an adult, as a leader, I, I hear that word failure and it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way because it's no, it's, it's a learning, it's the learning process. It's not, (laughs) it's not a failure. Oh, it's okay to fail, fail forward. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not even failure. Failure is the wrong word. So there's, so he's influenced me in that regard. And actually my mother is another major influencer in my life. Uh, and she was a, you know, she is, <laughs> she's still around. Uh, she's a person who is not afraid to just jump into things. And she's started and built and sold more companies than I can count. And she just, she's an entrepreneur. We would call her an entrepreneur. And, and she was doing this, you know, 40 years ago. And she was just sort of fearless. And she still is. So, I mean, that's another um, point of inspiration. And I, there's probably some characteristics I get that are from her, but certainly not to her. I envy the, the, the fearless, you know, this that she has. So that's like a benchmark that I, you know. You strive for that. Yeah, I strive for that, right? And I think probably the last one, although there's probably others, um, but... Uh, well, Captain America, he was a, a superhero. but Marvel. Marvel, yeah. It's, well, I don't know if I would call myself Marvel, but it's just certainly Captain America. I mean, because I came from a military family, and he was all about, you know, it's serving and good and all that. Um, but my uh, the last one was probably my, not my first boss, but my second boss in the federal government. And we're still friends today, and we've known each other for 30 years now. But uh, he was a very nurturing kind of guy that really taught me about servant leadership. Not like in a preachy way or but here again it's just by modeling and behavior so i think there's many things that i um uh when an issue comes up and i have a reaction to it uh and my if if i'm lucky enough to to have my uh, reaction be moderated (laughs) it's usually his voice that i hear and uh it's yeah so those are probably kind of the key little models for me what book would you say you gift most often? Reinventing Organization. The Frederick Lillian. Yes. Is that because of Holacracy or because of you? It's because it's one of those books that changes how you think. It's not because of Holacracy. It's, it's, it exposes you to a different way of thinking that was surprising for me. And, it, and for me, it opened up my eyes. And Holacracy was the one of the results of that. But it's, it uh, exposes me to what is happening around the world in a human level that, yeah, I just didn't know. So I know you take the metro here, and you yes. know that main Shakespeare Road, which is our yes. main yeah, yeah. freeway. Yeah. If we could give you a billboard to put any message you want for the people of Dubai or any tourists going through Dubai, what message would you like to oh my put gosh. out there for people? When you say rapid fire, am I supposed to have an answer right off the bat? No. no. <laughs> I'm just throwing them at you. <laughs> what would I put on the billboard? Oh, man. I, I, I think um, this may not fit on the billboard, but I, the way we I'm... We can make an extended billboard. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a series of them where they can just read, you know, the... Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it would take an entire mile. Um, I guess the way I'm interpreting that question is, like, what is the real meaningful things this is how I'm choosing to interpret it like what's really sort of the real meaningful message that I'd want to share with anybody and and I think for me that message is 
you know, still evolving. But maybe what I'd want on that billboard is a countdown timer. I'd want a countdown timer on how many seconds are left in that person's life that's looking at that billboard. So it's like memento mori, reminding you of death, that we will all experience it someday. Yeah, and, and that was actually, uh, this may be embarrassing, um, I saw this on Oprah once. My wife watches Oprah, and I would happen to be sitting with her as she's watching Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Great cover. <laughs> so there was, they had, I don't know, someone created a device that sits on top of it. They proposed putting it on top of the TV. And it was a countdown timer. You put in your birth date, and it, you know, statistically, guesstimates. yeah, guesstimates, like how many seconds you have left. What struck me about that was that if you saw, like if, if you watch your seconds decrement, like, you know, in real time, it really makes you question what, what you're doing, doing and why are you doing it. And I, I think about that often, actually. And, and I wish, uh, and I would hope that for more people, they'd be very thoughtful about how they're spending their time on this planet and how they want to, what kind of impact they want to make and how they want to be remembered. And, and certainly a countdown timer reminding you that, yeah. you know, that works. <laughs> my work. Yeah. Now, how you technically accomplish that would be amazing. Because yeah. <laughs> a heavy person likes Every individual person. <laughs> I think that's where augmented reality kicks in. <laughs> or syncs to yeah. a scanner that scans you. And <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a cohort here that could <laughs> propose that. That's a new that. challenge. <laughs> so what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self, knowing what you know today? Oh, man. Oh. Wow. My first thought is, I don't know what advice I'd give myself, but I probably wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something else entirely. <laughs> hmm. It's a tough one because I think I've been lucky to, well, I guess for two reasons. One is I've been lucky um, with the people that I've interacted with and um, the environments I've been in and sort of my ecosystem that I've coexisted in to have no regrets about that and things I'd want to change. And also, I think who I am today is a function of my experiences that I've had since I was 20 or zero, whatever. So um, I'm not sure that I'd want to change or advise or in some way, you know, this may be the the uh what's that uh, time travel you know paradox right <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily um, want to change what has happened yeah what has happened of... um it would be uh yeah because I, I don't know because i don't i think uh, i enjoy where i'm at there's you know certain things that motivate me and uh there's you know certain things that uh you know are you know that fear me that drive sort of my my actions but they're also the things that make who I am. And I'm not sure I'd want to... If you give advice, you might change who I might you change. are today. Yeah, I might... You know, like, and then advice? the paradox begins, and if you were changed, you wouldn't have given that advice right. in the first place. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I, that may be a cop-out. And I think if I had any actual sort of meaningful advice, I'm not sure I would listen to it. Because that's just part of, particularly being, being 20, right? It's part of all of us is you never really listen to, I'm now over 50. You don't listen to 50-year-olds. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's maybe a cop-out. Okay. This may be slightly related to what we just said. Uh-huh. Do you have any last words of wisdom 
you would like to share with the listeners? These are people who are willing to listen to you now. Oh, and they haven't already <laughs> shut off the podcast, <laughs> right? You know, I think that that clock is, I think, think about, you know, uh, what kind of impact you can make, um, you know, on the world. My personal purpose, so like in an organization, in Larks One, and in these sort of new, new teal type organizations, one of the thing, one of the characteristics of it is you're looking for, or the, one of the activities is people are very much in tune with what their own individual purpose is and trying to find organizations that align with their purpose. Okay. My personal purpose is to create a positive value-added interaction whenever their interaction I have. So like even in this interaction, right, it's my end goal is that I have a positive impact, right? And, and so I guess maybe my point here is that it might change on the age group. I might give different advice okay, that's fine. to different age groups. I think for younger people, I don't know, in the 20s. <laughs> the ones who don't listen. The, one, the ones that are me, that actually will potentially listen. <laughs> I think what I would uh, recommend is really nurture insatiable curiosity in, in yourself. Like constantly be learning and, and constantly strive. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's something, it's a value that I care about. It's something I do. And that's why I do so many different things, as you know, as we've talked. Um, so there's, I think, really nurture insatiable curiosity. And the reason why is because you're not here very long. And uh, I believe that one of the purposes of us being on this planet or having a life is to really maximize your experience in life, right? So um, be curious about things and jump into them and, and don't be afraid. Uh, for the older um, generation, when I say older, I'm talking about like my age. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, I think it's really easy as you get to my age to start to think about like where you might, oh, retirement, I don't know, whatever those sort of things. But like don't lose your momentum, in, there's a lot of momentum that I had in my 20s and 30s and 40s. And, and so one of the things I think about now is like just continue that momentum. Um, uh, a lot of what I do, I think about how I can influence. I have grandkids. I have a grandson. And uh, I think about how I can influence you know, my grandson and how I can be you know, a role model for, for him or even my daughters. And, uh, and I don't, I don't want to be the old guy that sits on the couch. I want to be the cool grandpa, right? Which is why I have bees and chickens and all this other kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm constantly pushing myself to just not um, wind down. <laughs> and I think as you get older, it's more important to wind up uh, because you're also a lot smarter. And I'm in a much better position to understand um, complex problems and complex issues because of my experience and age. So it's the best time to wind up. You might be the best problem solver now. Yeah, than right. you ever were. Ever was, and yeah, and every year, I, you know, it gets better, right? So, um, yeah, I think for you know, older people, like yeah, just you know, ramp it up, and you know, be those role models for, be the role model for the for um, the younger generation. And lastly, where can our listeners go to get more information, about, either about you or Holacracy One or just Holacracy in general? Yeah, so if you Google Michael D'Angelo and Holacracy, you'll see tons of articles just about me. Uh, those three words uh, result in only one person. <laughs> the, 
you want to learn more about Holacracy, I'd go to holacracy1.com. And there's a lot of information from there. You can also just Google Holacracy. Um, the one caution I would give, however, is there's a lot of clickbait out there where you know, writers are just sort of writing sensational stories. So you've got to be uh, a critical thinker as you process that information. But, uh, yeah, certainly go to holarxy1.com. And if people are interested in like, like learning more, like, oh, this is curious, I want to, I don't know, maybe take a workshop, there's a training and you know, workshop section, a little link. Click on that, and, and there's a lot of um, free resources as well as paid resources to learn more. Well, thank you for being on the show and yeah, explaining to us how Holacracy works and what Holacracy is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everybody knows exactly what it is. <laughs> it's perfectly explained. Well, it's a good intro. Yeah. And right. Hopefully, just at least a teaser. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You bet. You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash H1. That's the letter H and the number one. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.